Hey, Proof listeners. Plugra's premium European-style butter is a favorite of bakers. Why? Cook's Illustrated Recipe developer Erica Turner sums it up. Hey, Kevin. Did you know that the kind of butter you use when you're baking can actually make a difference in how your dish turns out? I did not. Butters that are slow-churned, like Plugra, are easier to work with because they make doughs more pliable. The amount of fat in the butter also makes a difference. Tell me more. Okay, so most American butters contain around 80% butter fat, but European-style butters, like Plugra, have a higher fat content. In fact, Plugra Premium European-style butter always contains 82% butter fat. And you're saying 2% is enough to make a noticeable difference? Oh, yeah, definitely. With Plugra Slow Turn Butter and its 82% butter fat content, you'll notice richer, flakier pastries, cakes that rise higher, and cookies that crisp more easily. Embrace your inner butter lover. From professional kitchens to your home. Visit Plugra.com for more information. Hey, Proof listeners, it's Kevin Pang. As we continue working on new episodes, we're taking a trip on the Wayback Machine with some of our favorite award-winning episodes. It's the Best of Proof award season! It is the start of Black History Month, and this week we're airing an episode about forgotten African-American fast food franchises. The story was reported by Dr. Marsha Chatelain, who won the 2021 Pulitzer Prize in History for her book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. And you'll hear some of those stories in this episode. So this week on Proof, The Case of the Disappearing Franchise, hosted by our founding host, Bridget Lancaster. The number one thing is trapezoids. This is Mike Nielsen. The roof is sort of this weird trapezoid, and then it has what I affectionately call the roof hump, but basically that little bump at the top that's also really just a series of trapezoids. I have developed a weird spidey sense for old Pizza Huts where... This is 100% true. This has happened multiple times now where I have driven around and I just, you know, the hairs kind of go up on the back of my neck. We're in a good area for an old Pizza Hut. Maybe you know the feeling. You're on a road trip or driving through an unfamiliar suburb and all of a sudden, deja vu washes over you. You've been here before, right? You recognize the brick pattern, the oddly shaped windows, the trapezoidal roof. But when you get a closer look, this isn't a restaurant. It's actually a funeral home. Or a pharmacy. Or in some cities, a gentleman's club. But it absolutely used to be a pizza hut. And I've been driving around and just, I have that feeling. And sure enough, within a block or two, there it is. There's the old pizza hut. Now it's a, you know, a, a laundromat or something. Mike runs a website called Used to Be a Pizza Hut. It documents the current lives of former Pizza Huts. The site has been written up in the Washington Post and Bloomberg News, and it inspired this performance on Jimmy Fallon. It used to be a Pizza Hut. It's not a Pizza Hut anymore. So what's with all the old Pizza Huts? Well, in 2019, Pizza Hut announced that they would close almost 500 Pizza Hut restaurants because basically they realized their takeout business was far more profitable than their dine-in business. Case closed. 
But there are many more used-to-be's. Dozens of other once-beloved chains that were important parts of the American fast food landscape until they died. You've got the famous case of White Tower, Arthur Treacher's, Mahalia Jackson's, and Minnie Pearl's Chicken. The list goes on and on. And I investigate them. Allow me to introduce myself. I'm Marcia Chatlin. By day, I'm a history professor at Georgetown University. And by the rest of the day, I'm a fast food sleuth. I am obsessed with the hidden history of fast food. I spend a lot of time on YouTube watching old fast food commercials. I scour message boards about fast food history. I snap pictures on vacations of abandoned pizza huts. And I can guess the year a vintage McDonald's was built based on the architecture. I'm a fast food detective. So gather around and I'll tell you my favorite stories of the fast food chains that once were, and I'll reveal the culprits that led to their demise. Today on Proof, we're joined by Marsha Chatlin. She's a professor, historian, and author of the book Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. Now, this is the first of a two-part series with Marsha on fast food history. Today's story is all about failed fast food chains and the stories that are hidden behind every drive through microphone in America. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. Well, hi, Marsha. Hi, Bridget. (laughs) I'm so excited that you're here with us. I am so excited to be here. You're going to talk about fast food today. So I have a question, which is, why do you like fast food stories so much, especially about franchises? I adore stories about fast food because I feel like they are such an important part of American culture. They are such a huge part of my own childhood and so many people's youthful memories. And the thing about fast food is that it's supposed to be the same experience and the same food no matter where you are. And I think when people are traveling or they're moving a lot, sometimes the fast food restaurant is the thing that makes you feel like you're at home. So, Marsha, you are really focusing on the fast food franchises that have disappeared. They're, they're no longer here. When I stumble upon stories about fast food businesses that aren't in existence anymore, I think of them kind of like mini detective cases, things that have left clues behind, but you're always trying to figure out the why. It's a page turner. All right. So we've got <laughs> ourselves a whodunit, maybe a what done it or a why done it. What's your first case here? So, have you ever heard of White Tower? White Tower? No, I have never heard of White Tower. So, I didn't either. But then I wrote a book about McDonald's. And when you do that, people ask you a lot of questions about hamburgers. (laughs) That makes sense. A few times when I was on my book tour, elderly audience members would ask me about White Tower. And I had to confess, I had no idea what they were talking about. So, White Tower, to me... Reminds me of White Castle. Do you think that they were just mistaken? Well, that's exactly it. They weren't. White Tower was also a slider joint, and it had 230 locations. Wow. And at some point, it seemed a little bit more popular than White Castle, and now it's gone. 
And if it sounds familiar, it's because this wasn't an accident that they were so similar. So the first case for today, White Tower Hamburgers. So in order to tell the story, we have to start with White Castle. You can make the argument that several serious and non-serious people like myself have done is, is essentially say that White Castle is the reason that we have hamburgers as a national meal. Every good detective knows that sometimes you have to work a case with a colleague, someone as committed as you are. This is where Adam Chandler comes in. Yes, he has the same name as the character from All My Children. Is it JR? Is it my son? Real-life Adam Chandler is a fast food expert, and he wrote a book called Drive Through Dreams. And when we start talking shop, it's a lot. So I have to say Whataburger, which I is had cookout a couple times when I lived Taco in Taco Bell has this weird progressive thing. Johnsonville sausages. I, my fiancé and I go to White Castle. There was a flirtation. The last time I was there, they were being boycotted over labor practices. Over labor issues. So I went and gave a lecture. Seriously, Adam is the best. Am I Watson? Am I Sherlock? I don't care. The first White Castle was opened in 1921 in Wichita, Kansas, by Billy Ingram and Walt Anderson. Walt was the son of Swedish immigrants who spent his early adulthood working odd jobs as a janitor, a stage manager for a traveling show, a dishwasher, and a cook. And while cooking at a diner in Wichita, he stumbled upon a new method of cooking burger patties. People loved them. Walt was doing pretty well with his burger patties, but he wanted to expand, and he had little money to do so. That's where Billy Ingram comes in. Billy, an insurance and real estate guy, decided he would co-sign a lease for a burger stand for Walt and help him lock down a $700 loan. Billy was so enamored with Walt's burgers that he sold his firm to devote all of his time to their new venture, the formally named White Castle System of Eating Houses. And the rest was fast food history. And White Castle is the reason that we have the franchise model in, in the way that we see stores that look identical and, and have the same kind of service protocol and really kind of a familiar experience that a long time ago was comforting and now kind of seems dystopian and weird. But here's why White Castle is such a big deal to this day. Back then, the American public wasn't actually sold on the concept of the hamburger. There was a sentiment that ground beef was something poor people ate. Not to mention, people were a bit squeamish about eating ground meat after novelist Upton Sinclair published The Jungle in 1906. It had very graphic and really gross depictions of slaughterhouses and processing plants. The Jungle actually led to major reforms in the meat processing industry. So by the time Billy Ingram and Walt Anderson paired up to start White Castle in 1921, Americans were feeling a bit better about eating ground beef. They convinced people that their White Castle slider was a safe bet. White Castle's brand was all about clean. They outfitted their stands with stainless steel kitchens, and cooks wore sparkling white uniforms. White Castle's slogan was buy them by the sack, and people liked it. They started expanding. Five years later, in 1926, they had plans to build their third location. White Castle's initial explosion on the scene made it sort of this target for dozens of different chains that were really close in name and really close in concept. Adam says after White Castle's early success, 
lots of copycats popped up. You had um, Royal Castle, you had Blue Castle, you had Silver Castle, you had Crystal, you had White Clock, uh, White Mana, which there's still a couple left in New Jersey. White Cabin, White Turret, White Rose. It sounds like a bad version of Game of Thrones. (laughs) (laughs) It was a bit relentless because people were making tons of money so quickly and everyone wanted to get on the hamburger train, but... I don't think they realized you had to be a little bit more original. Right. One of these copycats, Royal Castle, actually became bigger than White Castle at one point. And then there was White Tower, which is one of the biggest ones that um, came to prominence because they copied White Castle so shamelessly that they got sued. White Tower pops up in Milwaukee in 1926. It had sliders and a white building, and their slogan was, Take home a bagful. Sound familiar? Real familiar. The owners were father and son duo John and Thomas Sachs of Minneapolis. So Walt and Billy, again, these are the White Castle guys. They knew of other brands that tried to slide into the burger market. (laughs) See what I did there? (laughs) So bad. They were Midwestern business and weren't too bothered by West Coast or Southern brands that also sold sliders. But White Tower opening in Wisconsin, that was way too close to home. (laughs) That's like building a house that looks just like yours right next to your house. (laughs) I mean, the Saxmen had to be fans of White Castle. They were imitating it to exacting detail. So the Saxes visited several White Castles, and yes, they were big fans. They opened their first tower near Marquette University, and according to one historian of White Castle, the only thing that distinguished the tower from the castle was the towers didn't have a crenellated facade. But the Saxes copied everything else. They set up in similar neighborhoods as White Castle, they expanded into the same cities that White Castle expanded into, and this case also included a little espionage. Ooh, espionage. Well, kinda. (laughs) So apparently the Saxes were able to replicate White Castle's entire operating system by offering a hefty sum of money to a White Castle manager. He was told to swipe operating manuals, accounting information, and anything else he could use to teach them how White Castle managed to be so successful. Then they offered a White Castle counterman four times his pay to set up their kitchen. They also stole the designs for the signature hamburger paddle, which was made to flip multiple sliders at once, and copies of White Castle's accounting forms. They also hired photographers to snap pictures of White Castle buildings and interiors. It's starting to get creepy now. (laughs) (laughs) So Walt and Billy were definitely annoyed, and they first sued White Tower in 1929 in Minnesota. Then get this, White Tower sued White Castle in Michigan. That, by any definition, is a (laughs) bold move. Right, (laughs) So the Minnesota case was settled in a year, and the courts there said, come on, seriously? (laughs) Right. They ordered White Tower to cut it out and to change their name, look, and motto in the state of Minnesota. They also awarded White Castle $82,000 in damages. That's $1.2 million today. And what about Michigan? That one took five years. So White Tower, the copycat, had actually opened in Detroit before White Castle. And their lawsuit claimed that White Castle was infringing on their territory (laughs) by expanding in the city and confusing everyone. We should rename this single White Castle at this point. (laughs) This is getting ridiculous. The copycat is now accusing 
the original of copying. I know. So in the <laughs> Michigan case, the courts also told White Tower that they had to change the building architecture and they had to retire, take home a bag full. White Tower wouldn't go quietly on this one, and they appealed to the U.S. Sixth Circuit Court. Well, please tell me that the judges sided with <laughs> the castle guys and not the tower guys. Yes, they did take White Castle's side. The evidence was way too strong for this all to be a coincidence. White Tower's rebranding and company reorganization never took off. They seemed to lack any original ideas, and they couldn't compete with their muse, White Castle. Eventually, White Towers slowly closed. The company tried to open other styles of fast food restaurants and even flirted with steakhouses. The Sachs descendants went into real estate, and the last White Tower closed in Toledo, Ohio in 2004. I mean, they fell victim to a dangerous mess that they made themselves. They copycatted. Exactly. White Tower might be gone, but its legacy remains. Fast food companies are hyper-vigilant about making sure that no one is taking the White Tower approach and copying them. Elizabeth McCoffee, owner of California's McCoffee Coffee Shop, had to change her business name when McDonald's stumbled upon it. She couldn't even use her last name as a defense. Well, this reminds me of the McDowell's from Coming to America. <laughs> they got the golden arches. Mine is the golden arcs. <laughs> They have the Big Mac. We have the Big Mac. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So it sounds like the moral of this first case, what I've learned is don't mess with McDonald's. <laughs> I think that's a very good lesson. All right, detective. So what's your next case? So I'm going to say a name and tell me if it rings a bell. Okay. Arthur Treachers. Wow. That is a callback to my youth. I remember eating at Arthur Treacher's. Well, Arthur wasn't a spy, but he did <laughs> end up disappeared. And the culprit is a little unexpected. Oh, this is going to be a good one, I can tell. The late 1960s saw a surge in fast food fish joints. And a large part of it was thanks to American Catholics. The church's prohibition on eating meat on Fridays during the pre-Easter season of Lent meant that many Catholic families couldn't enjoy the drive through for several weeks out of the year. Prior to McDonald's taking it national in 1965, Ray Kroc responded to the call for a meat substitute with the hula burger. Please tell me that's not what I think it is. Yes, a slice of grilled pineapple in a bun, with or without the cheese. Ah, with <laughs> cheese? That was yeah. an option? Come on in and say McDonald's Golden Grill. It's got real pineapple. Exactly. So the McDonald's filet fish sandwich signaled to the fast food market that you can sell fried fish and burgers in the same place and that people would eat it all year round. So in the late 1960s, up popped fish-focused fast food franchises, Long John Silver's, Captain D's, and Arthur Treacher's. All three debuted in 1969, but only one, Arthur Treacher's, had the benefit of a celebrity spokesperson. Arthur Treacher was a very famous English actor, and he always played an English butler. The very definition of typecasting. Oh, you're going to leave us tonight, are you? Yes. He played Jeeves in Shirley Temple movies. He was in Mary Poppins. And later, he was Merv Griffin's sidekick on his TV show. 
Here he is on a 1959 episode of I've Got a Secret. The big secret is he froze the game show panelists' paychecks in a 600-pound block of ice. Because I froze their paychecks right in the middle of the ice. For some reason. I guess you had to be there. So how involved exactly was Arthur Treacher in this restaurant? Was it his recipe? Not quite. Arthur Treacher, at the urging of his friend Bob Hope, leased his name to the operation. That was a practice that was pretty popular with celebrities in the 1960s and 1970s. But apparently the recipe was over a century old. It came from a British restaurant to the United States in the 1860s. Arthur would occasionally show up at a restaurant location in a double-decker bus. People really liked Arthur Treacher's fish and chips because it tasted like the fish and chips you would find in a real-life British pub, and it felt a bit more refined than the competitors. They offered fish made in that battered style that makes the outside almost like tempura, and the potatoes were thickly cut, rather than the skinnier American-style fries. In 1969, this was really different. And there were some real brains behind the operation, including Dave Thomas, who would go on to create Wendy's. Arthur Treacher's was a hit, and it grew to more than 800 locations by the mid-1970s. That's in less than 10 years. The fish and chip shop with an American twist seemed unstoppable. Until the Great War. The two and a half thousand ton Diomede was on station 31 miles off Iceland's coast. Bearing down on the British fishing fleet, the Icelandic gunboat Baldur, a converted stern... The Great Cod War of 1975-1976. Iceland was trying to protect its fish supply, its cod supply, by restricting British access to their waters. And Iceland negotiated for decades about fishing limits, and they felt that the Brits weren't playing by the rules. As the vessels jostled for position, the international signal, you are not doing your best to avoid collision, bellowed from the sirens of both ships. After a few close calls, in which Icelandic fishing vessels and Royal Navy boats would get within inches of each other as if they were about to crash, and then one of the ships would quickly veer away to prevent a total disaster, NATO... Yeah, NATO, as in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, had to get involved. And in June of 1976, both sides came to a resolution. For almost everyone, the Cod Wars was a pretty forgettable moment in history. But for Arthur Treacher's, the Cod War was the war to end all fish and chip specials. Due to the conflict, the price of their precious whitefish doubled. So Arthur Treacher's is the victim of really pricey fish. Yes, and the cautionary tale in all of this is that fast food is global, even when it's just in one country, and this case is all about the supply chain. You know those signs outside of McDonald's that indicate billions of burgers sold? Yes, I remember when they said millions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they used to have an actual number, but in the 1990s, they stopped being so specific. So if you haven't noticed before, now you will. Some say over 99 billion, others just say billions. Either way, every time I see those signs, all I can think of is, that's a lot of cows. The supply chain, though, it's kind of the hidden underworld of fast food. This is Alex Park. 
Alex is also a fast food connoisseur. Um, like five guys and shake I just shake. like that you can get barbecue sauce on a burger. But the one that was worth going out of the way for, for me, was, was and, Wendy's. And cookout is kind of its own level of just kind of fast food craziness. So when I talk to Alex, I get him and he gets me. But it's that supply chain underworld that has really captured his interest. In a given country, KFC gets kind of big, and then the, the chicken producers also kind of get big. And there's, there's a constant conversation that goes on between them. Because in the case of massive fast food supply chains, supply and demand affect each other. The more eggs and chicken that producers produce, the cheaper the eggs and chicken become. And in turn, the more fast food companies are able to expand, therefore fueling the demand. Or as Alex so elegantly puts it... There is, kind of, to put it one way, there's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. These industries are so dependent on one another, so it's no surprise that brands often get hands-on with their supply. KFC has a very active hand in kind of helping those poultry producers along. Okay, this is how you're going to do it. You know, this is how you kind of meet this massive demand. Here is how you kind of raise a chicken to our very exacting standards, and they are really exacting. And so that kind of involvement in the supply chain is actually very typical in in fast food. If you're in a capital city of a developing country today and you see a new KFC open up, KFC may have taken an interest in that country and started trying to work their connections and try to get something going a decade before that KFC opened. Over the course of that 10-year period Alex describes, the fast food brand is vulnerable to the forces they can't control, like natural disasters, labor strikes, and even wars. And of course, big brands don't like being vulnerable. And they prefer in a given country to have two producers, and either one of which could supply the entire system in that country on their own if they ever needed to. Fast food's ability to be consistent, to expand, and to deliver reliably depends on the supply chain. Right. So if you have an E. coli outbreak in a top iceberg lettuce producer farm, that might mean no Taco Bell gorditas for you. Or in the case of the Icelandic Cod Wars, that meant no Arthur Treacher's fish and chips. When the Cod War started, Arthur Treacher's had established more than 850 locations, relying on a supply of cod each month. So this otherwise insignificant moment in Icelandic fishing history made all the difference. They tried to save themselves by selling out to Mrs. Paul, the queen of frozen fish. But that supply chain was different. It was Pollock, and it didn't taste the same. Yeah, Pollock's often used as a substitute for crab meat. I mean, it's very close to that. So I imagine that customers definitely noticed when they were subbing in Pollock for Cod. They noticed big time. And the franchisees were caught in the middle. The new supply chain could have been the key to keeping the doors open, but it was a substitution of product. And customers didn't want it. In fact, the franchisees actually sued Arthur Treacher's and Mrs. Paul's. In the lawsuit, the franchisees claimed, quote, the franchisees were forced to buy inferior fish products. Rest in peace, Arthur Treacher's. You gave us some really good fish and chips. He really did. And it happens. You'd think the celebrity backing would have been enough to save it. But there are actually more celebrity-branded franchises that suffered the same fate, including my favorite case of all time. 
Ooh, and that is a tease. More after the break. Before the break, we learned about the demise of White Tower and Arthur Treacher's Fish and Chips. So, Marsha, are there any more disappearing franchises that you've got for us? This one is my favorite, and there are actually two. Mahalia Jackson's Glory Fried Chicken and Minnie Pearl's Chicken. Mahalia of gospel music fame and Minnie Pearl the country musician? So I stumbled upon this case in the wee hours of the night when I couldn't get to sleep and I had already cleared my Netflix queue. (laughs) So I found myself scrolling through digital copies of old magazines. I'm a historian, so this is my version of making a late night snack. (laughs) And I found this article from 1968 and it caught my eye. It said, glorified chicken with Mahalia Jackson. So what was her connection to Minnie Pearl? So both Minnie Pearl and Mahalia Jackson were two faces of one business, and they were connected by two men, John Jay and Henry Hooker. They were not music stars. John Jay and Henry were born to a wealthy, well-connected Tennessee family. They were all attorneys, and John Jay was a progressive Democrat and ran for governor unsuccessfully in 1966 and 1970. Henry Hooker was also a prominent member of Tennessee High Society. He ran his brother's political campaigns and spent lots of time on his passion, fox hunting. Like so many others in the late 1960s, the Hooker brothers caught the franchising bug, and they wanted to try their luck. The idea was this. One fried chicken recipe, two brands, with two different music celebrity faces, Mahalia Jackson and Minnie Pearl. So what was with this two-pronged approach to their branding? Why did they go that route? It has to do with something called market segmentation. Instead of creating one brand and trying to scoop up all the customers, you create two different brands for different types of customers. In this case, it was about race. The Hooker brothers wanted to run two celebrity brands at once, where African-American diners are invited to Mahalia's and white diners would be offered a seat at Minnie's. The Hooker brothers approached gospel music queen Mahalia Jackson and her friend, civil rights attorney Benjamin Hooks, and asked if they would become business partners. Mahalia Jackson was famous, not only for her singing, but also for her work in civil rights. She sang at John F. Kennedy's inauguration, the March on Washington, and Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral. And her name graced the marquees of the Newport Jazz Festival, Carnegie Hall, and yes, a fried chicken restaurant. And together, the Hooker brothers, Mahalia and Benjamin Hooks, developed Mahalia's Glory Fried Chicken. It wasn't just another fast food restaurant. The concept was built around Mahalia's own commitment to civil rights. She wanted her restaurants to make a difference. Mahalia's franchise locations were part of a trend in the late 1960s and 1970s, in which Black-owned restaurants were seen as a way of providing employment, job training, and philanthropy to Black communities. They advertised in African-American newspapers and magazines as a potential franchise opportunity for churches and community groups. I even found some old pictures of them. They had commissioned a Black architecture firm to design them to look like churches, with a center vestibule and dramatic archways, I also read that while you ate, you could hear Mahalia's music. 
Meanwhile, the Hooker brothers approach Minnie Pearl. The Grand Ole Opry's Minnie Pearl was the face of country music for decades, and she appeared on the Jamboree variety show Hee Haw between 1969 and 1991. We're through playing now! While Mahalia's brand was very black economic power, Minnie's brand was all about the family meal. It's Sunday at Minnie Pearl's. Friends... Family and food to plenty. What fried chicken might say? And of course, plenty of many pearls chicken. The two different views of what a chicken dinner could do in the late 1960s are very reminiscent of what fast food symbolized in different communities. So did this two-pronged, two-faces approach work? Yes and no. For Mahalia's, it seemed like several dozen opened across the South, and there were some in the Midwest. For Minis, there seemed to be more locations. By 1969, they had more than 200 restaurants open and lots in the works. And that was part of the problem. It expanded really, really rapidly, and that's actually what caused it to come crashing down. The Hooker brothers were creative in their marketing strategy of segmenting the consumer base and trying to appeal to what they believed each audience wanted. They were also a little too imaginative in financing their business. When John Jay and Henry signed up new franchise location owners, they only collected security deposits, equaling about 10% of the $20,000 fee. And if that sounds too good to be true, it's because it is. This wasn't charity. It was a not-so-legitimate expansion plan that theoretically would allow the hookers to expand both Mahalia Jackson's and Minnie Pearl's restaurants on very little money. And what were they supposed to do when that money ran out? The brothers signed up more people for stores. They used their many connections in Tennessee to get people to buy in. So the Hooker Brothers' early investors were a list of Tennessee's who's who, a member of Congress, a former Tennessee Secretary of State, the publisher and editor of the local paper, and a former coach of the Tennessee Volunteers football team. They recruited new franchisees, collected security deposits, and used that money for the existing restaurants. And very few of these people had any restaurant experience, including the Hooker Brothers. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds a little bit like they're building a business in, shall we say, some sort of triangular shape that's (laughs) dependent on money coming from the bottom, working its way to the top? You got it. The Hooker brothers were running what some described as a pyramid scheme. (laughs) Right. So for a while, some of their locations reported big profits, and the Hooker brothers were able to keep up the new deals. Their business was considered the future of fast food. And eventually, they went public and offered the purchase of their stock in May of 1968. The stock was a big hit. It opened at $20 a share and closed at 40 by dinnertime. Nearly a year later, the brothers had signed deals for 1,200 restaurants. But then John Jay wanted to get back into politics, and he mounted a campaign to run for governor again in the 1970 election. He wants better care for all the ages, better education and more livable wages. He wants better highways and more industry. Vote John Jay Hooker for Tennessee. So I assume that running a chicken business while you're running for 
governor might be a little bit complicated? Complicated doesn't even begin to describe it. First of all, their never-ending borrowing structure was not sustainable. By waiting until after a franchise restaurant was built to start demanding fees, the Hooker brothers were not able to cover their expenses. But they kept on signing more people without a real plan for building at locations from Nashville to Los Angeles. The brothers figured they should get out of chicken before John Jay ran. They had planned to sell off their business, but before they could, the SEC got involved. <laughs> the party is over. The SEC <laughs> is in there, and that means things have gotten real serious. Very serious. Now, depending on who you ask, the SEC, or the Security Exchange Commission, was merely looking into a wildly successful stock opening because that is what they're supposed to do. Okay, so what's the other perspective here? All politics. John Jay and Henry believed that the Nixon administration sent the SEC after them because he didn't want a progressive Democrat as Tennessee governor. <laughs> well, the brothers must have been absolutely sweating bullets at this point. No kidding. <laughs> they were being scrutinized by local newspapers. Their mini Pearls locations were closing really fast, some making it only a few months. And they even gobbled up other businesses along the way, including, wait for it, a few royal castles, another White Castle copycat restaurant. No way. Yes. So <laughs> after the SEC took a look at the Hooker Brothers books, they discovered some irregularities. The Hooker Brothers were recording fees they would eventually collect on franchises as income, which inflated the company's value. And when the discrepancy was discovered, investors jumped ship. And Minnie and Mahalia's was lost to history. By 1970, Minnie and Mahalia's was trading at 44 cents a share. And fans really didn't learn about the entanglement with the Hooker brothers and Mahalia's until she died suddenly in 1972. And I think for African-American fans, they were actually surprised that the business wasn't hers because she was so connected to it in terms of her image. And when she died, people found out that she had just leased her name to the Hooker brothers for $100,000. Minnie was a little bit more connected because she had 250 restaurant locations. And the fall of the Hooker brothers was a source of personal disappointment for her. And by the mid-70s, all of these restaurants seemed to have disappeared. Wow. That had to have been a big letdown for both of them. So what was the legacy? What, what was the fallout from all of this? Well, the big takeaway from the Hooker Brothers disaster is that the National Organization of Accountants told franchisors to not use the Hooker method of accounting <laughs> right. and to tell people how to actually report income. And I think as a result of this moment, fewer celebrities hitch their wagons to brands, even though they're willing to be celebrity spokespeople. You don't see a lot of names on brands. Yeah. So, Marsha, what is it about these failing fast food chains that you just find so compelling? You know, as a historian, 
my whole life is about memory. It's about mm. thinking about the past. And when I think about fast food, I think about nostalgia. I think about these moments in time that might be lost to us and all of the things that we can learn. You know, these failures also shape our world in really big ways. And there's no better way to help people see a deeper and more complex story than using an everyday object like fast food to tell it. And so I think as long as there are hints that a fast food restaurant used to exist on a corner or a brand that has disappeared, I'll always be curious on how we tell these stories. And I keep looking for new ones to tell. And it's just one of the reasons that we love you, Marsha. Thanks so much. Thanks, Bridget. Thanks to Marsha Chatlin for reporting this story. Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Tune in next week for more Best of Proof. 